0: Hello, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for this week, ending Friday the 17th of November. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 to 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the pod this week, you'll hear us chat with Hannah Maloney, permaculture pioneer and presenter on Gardening Australia, all about her new book, Good Life Growing, and how you can plant something anywhere in Australia. And also, if you were to race an animal, which one would you beat?
1: Irish comedian and TV presenter Dara O'Brien joined us for a chat while in town performing his latest show, So Where Were We?, and a freshly buzzed Fee Wright reviewed Melissa Broder's latest book, Death Valley.
2: We got spooky with Malthouse Theatre director Matt Lutton, who is staging the immersive production Hour of the Wolf, Food Interlude, Michael Harden distilled for us, The Rise of Gin, and Nat takes us on a bin journey.
3: Melbourne's own, triple R.
2: Hannah Maloney is a best-selling author, permaculture practitioner, sustainability educator and presenter on ABC TV's Gardening Australia, whose new organic gardening book is billed as a collection of the most useful things the activist has learned and trialled over the decades. Its title is Good Life Growing, How to Grow Fruit and Veg Anywhere in Australia and to tell us about it, the Good Life Gardener joins us now. Hannah, welcome to Breakfasters.
4: Hello, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure.
2: Now, there's a bit of a straight line, isn't there, between a a ransomware attack on a Stevedore company and supply chain issues in your book. Is that fair enough? In terms of (laughs) being self-sufficient, you've mentioned supply chains in the book.
4: Yeah, sure. And look, it's a, you mentioned self-sufficiency there and it's something I'm not actually a fan of. And so I'm, I'm more of a fan of what's called community mm. sufficiency, which is where, you know, you have a crack at growing at whatever you're interested in growing, but you don't have to do everything yourself because it's a huge amount of work to try to do that. And uh, why not try to do it collectively amongst your region, city, state, territory, whatever that might be. And together we can collectively provide all our uh, goods and services with food and beyond. Because mm.
2: you write that it's estimated that at any given time, there's just 30 days worth of non-perishable mm. food in our supply
4: chain. Mm, yeah, and that really came home pretty quick when some of those national lockdowns with COVID days um, where I live in Tasmania, but uh, we were scrambling, or not myself, I have a big garden, but a lot of people were scrambling to get fresh fruit and veg And um, quite affluent suburbs. And so I think that really came home. With perishable foods like the fruit and veg, it's more like four or five days And so on, of, of food worth on the supermarket shelves. And so there's so many... Uh, Pragmatic, sensible reasons to have a crack at growing some of your own food. Mm.
1: And I guess as well, like casting our minds back to, yeah, those lockdown days as well, not only is it kind of wise to maybe, yes, learn to grow your own fruit and veg for supply issues, but also kind of like for like reconnecting with food sources Mm. Mm. and like mental health. I know I definitely got into gardening just to kind of, uh, yeah, for something to do different outside of the house.
4: Yeah, and look, the science is well and truly in on that front. Like, so gardening and connecting with the earth in whatever shape and form is good for you. It's actually physically good for your body, mentally good for your brain, uh, and it's, so it's not to be dismissed as something you just do. Oh, that's what old people do on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Like, no, no, that's what we all do because it's fantastic for us. <laughs> yeah. and it's a version of gardening for everybody. You've just got to find what fits for you. So yeah. what's, what's the what's your what's gateway? What's the gateway into gardening? Well, look, you know. Often it's the tomato (laughs) because when people taste homegrown tomatoes, they go, oh, I didn't know it tasted like that. Mm. And then then, then they're off. They're off. You can't stop them. But uh, but I do recommend when people are just starting out to uh, have a crack at the leafy greens and the herbs because they're quite easy to grow in pot plants or in a garden. And often they're pretty pricey at your local shops. Uh, And they're often a little bit limp, a bit floppy as Mm. well on the shelves. And so... The, you, nothing like uh, fresh greens straight from your pot plant or from your garden. Mm. What's the most inventive
2: or creative you think you've been? Given that you've you rather you've lived in twenty five different rental properties over a period of ten years, mm. so renting's no excuse. Yeah,
4: no mate, no, no <laughs> definitely not. So yeah, in, in all of those twenty five share houses over ten years, I contributed to or started edible gardens, and often they're annual gardens because they're quick to grow. Uh, but I think you get really creative. So I think I've because um, at nurseries you can buy grow bags to grow things in you can buy anything but you can also look for the loopholes and go oh how can I do this for free and so I've been known to grow in old pillowcases uh, inside milk crates so you can lift them up easily and move them around to chase the sun especially in places like um, temperate Melbourne the sun is important especially in winter Uh, and so you can you can find these fun hacks you go look I haven't got much money. I've got, maybe got no money, but I do have a pillowcase. <laughs> yeah.
5: Oh,
2: love it. It's wild using a sa- – and now soil, you've, you're a bit of a – well, you're a soil aficionado, naturally. <laughs> uh, what was the – is it six billion organisms in a teaspoon of soil?
4: Oh, look, it's, it's ridiculous. Like it's billions and billions of things you obviously can't see, but healthy soil is squirming alive with a galaxy of beneficial biology that helps make our food nutritious because healthy soil equals healthy plants equals healthy people. So if you're interested in growing food, you should be really interested in what's happening under those food leaves, under our feet. So it's all about the soil health. It sounds sounds overwhelming
0: to sort of get your head around all those. Yeah,
4: and I remember learning about soil science and all the things. I did all the courses with all the experts and I was overwhelmed. And then the thing that I've tried really hard since then with lots of teaching I do and in this book as well is like, let's demystify this. Let's break this down. You don't need a microscope. You don't need all the things. You don't need all the gimmicks you just need to get outside with your hands pick up some soil maybe there's a bit of water involved maybe you have a glass jar involved to work out what you have and how healthy it might be you don't need all the special things you just need to have a little bit of information point you in the right direction and the willingness to have a crack mm.
1: what would be some hacks for like creating like a healthy rich nutrient rich soil like on a budget because mm. i know sometimes you do
4: like you're saying you look it up and you're like oh, i need one third of this oh. i need one third of that yes and- wildly intimidating sometimes Mm. (laughs) look i reckon so generally no matter what kind of soil you have heavy clay heavy um, big sand soils you always want to look to uh, add organic matter which could Uh be compost it could be something like no dig gardening where you just add layers of um, mulch uh, green grass clippings manures that you might be able to source and no dig gardening is great because often It's a bit of this, it's a bit of that. And you can find some of that in your house, in your community um, and maybe in your local council um, areas where they're mowing grass or you're harvesting leaves off the streets or appropriately in parklands. Mm. So you can kind of um, do a community audit to go, what resources do I have available here? Of course, making your own compost is the golden thing as well. You can do it with food scraps as well as any kind of carbon things, which can include office paper, shredded cardboard and such. And so we want to be uh, putting these beautiful nutrients into our ground. So cycling nutrients, there's no such thing as waste when it comes to organics. It's just underutilised resources yet to be composted.
2: Uh, <laughs>
5: uh,
2: you grew up on a herb nursery. Um, Does do you what's your relationship to free will? Do you feel as though you're (laughs) living that childhood, or was it inevitable this life for you?
4: Oh, you know what? I grew up on a um, herb nursery in the Ange in Brisbane. We ended up with half an acre across three urban properties that my dad ran. So at the time, it's very normal. Yeah, it's like oh yeah, this is what we do. Looking back, amazing. At the time did not love working on herb nurseries. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, crikey. By the time I left time I was like, never want to do that again. Fascinatingly, six months later, I was travelling Australia, found myself uh, working on a herb nursery in Adelaide by choice and <laughs> loving it. And I think it's, you know, you've you got to find your own way to these things. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much your parents, your teachers or the different maybe leadership figures in your life tell you what to do. You have to find your own way and you have to find your entry points of joy and love to have a crack. But, you know, I have... Absolutely drawn on that childhood, I had. I have an unusual amount of knowledge about herbs and how to propagate. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: I love that. Did you ever entertain briefly, like how you'd rebel, like what would be the profession if you weren't doing this?
4: <laughs> Ooh, good question. You know what? I have uh, not really. Like, I think my parents did a pretty bang up job at just instilling values into us. Mm-hmm. All of five. I've come from a family of five kids, and it looks in different ways uh, because we're all different. But the values are deep, and mm-hmm. I, I think you know, I um. I haven't tried, I haven't wanted to go against them because I can see that good values kind of shape a good world for everybody and I can't walk away from that. So, Did you watch Gardening Australia growing up? Yeah, so it's so funny. So at the time Peter Kundal was the, the head of the show and I was like, how'd they get that guy on telly? He's a <laughs> radical. <Yeah. laughs> what a beautiful human being. He gave so much to the world of gardening and beyond. He's, he was an incredible activist for Tasmanian forests and also just for good social values. So I have huge respect for Peter Kundal in the garden and out of the garden. Mm. Is, is permaculture having a bit of a moment? Yeah, I reckon it's having a bit of a, you know, people, it's more familiar to people. So it's definitely um, seems to be back in the in the limelight, if you like. It's about a great way to grow food, but also more broadly, permaculture can be applied to uh, different holistic ways of living, whether that's in the built environment, economics, governance, education, health and wellbeing and beyond. So it's not just about gardening, which is why I like it actually. But it absolutely, I think people are drawing on permaculture in a gardening context because because it's more accessible. You can go, okay, where are the loopholes? What does it look like in the middle of Melbourne or out out in the bush? And so I think permaculture can be great going, what's a framework for an entry-level gardener to go, okay, what does this look like for me? Mm. And it's so perfect at just, um, you know, making sure there's no waste in your systems and and finding those practical things that you can apply anywhere anytime
1: because you mentioned in the book that you say this is the book that you wish you had when you were traveling around um the country what is like a lesson that's taken you a long time to learn that you wish you could have had earlier that's in the book (laughs)
4: look there's there's so many things that jump to mind i think a big thing, like everything from how to grow a carrot properly, that was that frustrate, frustrated me for quite a few years. So they but, don't go all wonky? Yeah, mm. absolutely. And good germination rates, all these things. But what I really love is um, in this book I've put a lot of information about perennial food systems and especially edible forest gardens, also known as food forests. And I've put a lot of plant lists, a lot of information, a lot of examples of what they can look like for any climate zone. I reckon when we grow food we should be talking more and more about perennial food systems. They're stable, they've got roots in the ground, forever it's great for climate change which we are being told to prepare for more and more and we need stable ecosystems which give back to the earth and not just take away or deplete the landscape so this book i think that's my favorite chapter edible forest gardens go this is what they are this is how you do them and this is why we do them you've also made me reappraise my relationship with slopes Oh, hello. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I live on a very steep slope. We affectionately call it a cliff face and we garden <laughs> on it. And so we've done a lot of terracing strategically there. And uh, it's, a, it's a really good example because, you know, we got that land because we could afford it. It's, it's called marginal land or some people go, oh, that's bad land. There is no such thing as bad land. Full stop. There's land that's definitely more challenging. Maybe it's degraded, maybe it's polluted, but you can always do something with what you have. And so we love being able to show people yes, we live on a cliff face, but with some terracing, a lot of hard work, a lot of perennial food systems, and some good native infrastructure in there with the good plants, Um, we've got a pumping, beautiful, thriving ecosystem. And that's got maybe maybe three or 4% of that is an annual vegetable garden, but the other 96, 97% is perennial uh, plant systems. What's your next Gardening Australia segment? Oh, well, I don't even know. <laughs> well, the great thing about Gardening Australia is often we're filming months in advance, and I don't always know until the week before um, what's going to go on air that week. And so I'll be fil- I'm filming um, in the next couple of days, but we might not see those stories for another twelve months. Do you ever film in Melbourne or? Rarely. So yeah. when I'm here, I've done some great filming here over the years. But, of course, you've got the amazing Jane and mm-hmm. Millie here uh, who are uh, homed in Victoria. So it's well taken care of.
2: <laughs> I feel like it's one of those shows where once you you either grow into it or are there from the start or you like you find yourself, it's like, oh, my God, I'm watching Gardening Australia. yeah. I Hit
0: that era. <laughs> totally. Uh,
2: the book is Good Life Growing, How to Grow Fruit and Veg Anywhere in Australia. Australia. It's out via Affirm Press. It is legitimately a beautifully put together book. Oh, thanks, uh, so congratulations. Hannah Maloney is the author and it's been a great pleasure to have you in studio. Thanks, thanks Hannah. Thanks for having me.
6: Independent hey. Melbourne, Melbourne Radio, Radio. 3RRR.
2: Yesterday I found
1: myself familiarising... Um, Myself with the man versus horse marathon. Have either of you heard of that?
5: Nope.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Neither had I. Um, So it's an annual event that happens in Wales where runners race horses. Like with yeah,
0: race against them.
1: Yeah, race against the horses. Yeah, with people riding them. Sorry. Um, It started in the nineteen seventies around this argument that humans like superpower is endurance so we could actually beat a lot of like the world's fastest animals over like a hundred kilometer distance our advantage being the fact that we can sweat and regulate our heat mm-hmm. um where our, our other animals can't so they can run really fast but only for shorter distances mm-hmm. anyway this came up randomly in conversation and so I found myself um one looking into this marathon and then secondly thinking about what animal I would race that's where the conversation (laughs) went over like maybe like let's choose 400 meters for a distance like Mm. what do you think if there was people watching what animal you would maybe have a shot against racing well I
0: think The advantage is being able to run in a straight line. For one, Mm -hmm. like I was thinking, oh, maybe like a cat. Like I've never seen a cat run very far. Right? This is true.
1: (laughs) This is true. So you take four hundred meters straight against a cat. They
0: would just—they just—they dart, right? They dart under a car, Uh up a tree. But I reckon I could beat
1: you. Could beat a cat four hundred meters. I like that, and 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 I like that you've chosen in a straight line as well. Because I was definitely looking at you know, you can tweak it, tweak specifics. Like oh. I was looking at maybe um, racing a golden retriever with arthritis, something oh, like okay. that, you know, just to give – because I feel like definitely a dog would be but a human it, in 400-meter race.
0: Yeah, because anyone who owns, you know, a Border Collie or a sheepdog or would say they need to walk them 20 times a day and they, they never stop running and they never get tired. So I feel like a dog is a terrible choice. Okay. Unless it's a little – dumb dog like mine <laughs> a terrible choice so you could take pepper easy no it's a terrible choice for you to go against a golden retriever even with arthritis oh I feel really like, i just feel like dogs have a lot of endurance a lot of energy and apparently on the text line horses do sweat i mean all animals that's why they pant isn't it mammals at least
1: yes but i think it's couldn't tell pa- you how lizards the sweats. panting i think um i mean i can't go into the, the details of the science around this but mm. like they can't pa- pant, I think, when they're at their full speed, some animals. Oh, they have to stop. Yeah, so maybe.
0: Imagine seeing a horse running, <laughs> panting. Panting. Like, I need to look into and how many um, times.
1: nostrils would flare, probably. Mm. How do you think humans go against the horses? I need to check.
0: But anyway. there are humans on the horses, aren't there? Humans but on not the horses just yep. running wild. Mm-hmm. Badly? Yeah. What's the average speed of a horse? in the like, Melbourne Cup or something. I don't know. Oh,
1: I don't have those figures in front of me, Mon. No, I, you need to do I research. I should very have important done topic. more research. I did start kind of going down that rabbit hole of like kilometres per hour with different animals comparing it to humans and the average speed we run marathons in and I was just like, you know what, this is – no, I, I can't deal with all of these numbers. Mm. I dropped out of mass
2: in year 10. Well, that <laughs> lot of good endurance does you uh, if you're – because uh, if you're f- running from a wildebeest, it's not wanting a medal. It presumably wants you. Mm. Oh, so it can so, catch oh, you. Yeah, it'll catch And so who cares if you can run 100 K. Yeah, yeah you get 100 metres. you get nabbed within 300 metres. Yeah,
0: it's same like, with a cheetah, yeah. They can't, they can't run for a very long time, but – They are the fastest. They are the fastest. I
2: could, I reckon I'd give a French bulldog a run for its money Mm. over a kilometre.
0: Okay, okay. Yep. Yeah, yeah, just the the image of you running from a French bulldog for a (laughs) kilometre is really great.
1: And you've got it on a lead maybe as well as a bit of a hack to keep it behind. And then you do like a circle towards the end to keep it from crossing the line. See, there's these tactics I'm open to. I think um, an animal that is underestimated with speed, but I think I could take it maybe in a kilometre, is a wombat.
5: Oh, They can run
1: like 40 kilometres an hour. What? Yeah. A wombat? Yeah. Wow, I didn't know this. Yeah, but I think that's maybe like a peak –
2: Professional athlete Wombat, yeah,
1: which, which has been which training, there are many. as we know, Wombat's
2: doing. Well, people don't <laughs> the Wombat Olympics. Uh, punters, unless you're competing and really paying attention. I know people. There are a lot of runners who pay attention to their stats, but I don't think I've had my speed recorded. That often, maybe even since I ran against Cathy Freeman at ScienceWorks. you the guy
0: that sued them when you ran into the wall. Why do they (laughs) have the wall so close? Yeah, it's it's their fault. Do you know that? No. The guy who thought he could beat (laughs) Cathy Freeman because, of course, he could did that that thing at ScienceWorks where you can tr- run against against her and he like broke his leg or something and tried to soothe them for it. Well they do put the wall so I mean maybe it
5: maybe it's was, changed. It was
2: but it. if I was Kathy Freeman I'd be it, it's like was this Kathy's idea? Like put a wall so they slow down at the end. I don't want anyone <laughs> They at least need some padding on the wall
1: or something like that. Anyway, look There's still a silhouette like Wiley
0: Coyote. (laughs) Yeah, there's a big Daniel-shaped hole in that wall. (laughs) I mean, maybe,
1: yeah, there's a gap in the market for chasing. I would love to have that with some, like, what you can do, race Kathy Freeman, but with some other animals. Yeah. Over a kilometre. I'm sure there's
0: space for that, isn't it? I mean, so you're thinking dogs Um... with injuries is what we've settled on? Oh, mm. well, a French bulldog is good. Yeah. The shorter legs so no struggle to breathe
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> over a kilometer. I think that that's that's a good pick. I'd go a wombat. I stupidly said a kid a kid now without looking into it because thinking I bet they're faster
0: than people think. They're not. They're not. They're very slow. So then it's a good choice. And now I be. Also, oh, you want a
1: challenge. You want it. Uh, you're to like, say a
0: tortoise or something. There's
1: people in attendance. <laughs> yeah. So you want it that, in my mind, it's like a gladiator thing. I don't know. You're at the MCG and you're running against an animal. You want it to be a pretty even fight. Mm. Yeah, so I like yours, the cat, 100 metres,
2: 400 metres straight. Yeah. I think wombat is where I landed and a French, French bulldog. I feel like the tortoise in the head, like the Aesop fable has never been, well, it, maybe it has been verified, mm. but I feel like tortoises are really dining out on the fable. Mm. <laughs> <And there's,
0: laughs> They've had it too
5: good for too long. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> there's
2: no way a tortoise would be to under any circumstances. I'm calling absolute bullshit on Aesop's <laughs> fable.
1: But we're like humans are like the tortoise, aren't we? Because it's like we get we get them over the distance.
2: Yeah, well, that's the fable. Yeah. Uh, and I – You're not buying into it. I, I'm not buying into it. I don't buy into the reality of it. Uh, if we're running from a cheetah, the cheetah's nabbing us. <laughs> we don't get the opportunity to go to the distance. And I don't think we're that enduring anyway. Anyway, I, I, I'm just – I think we've been hoodwinked by Aesop.
0: Yeah, and we should never read that fable again. Never, never, never. But
2: do look into uh, man versus horse marathon.
1: (laughs) Maybe it might convince you, Daniel. (laughs) Triple
2: R. Dara O'Brien is comedian, author, TV presenter and garrulous spruker of STEM who has toured his stand-up around the world with shows including Crowd Tickler, Voice of Reason and Crack Dealer, all the while being a staple of TV in Ireland and the UK as a panel show darling and host of the BBC's long-running Mock the Week as well as Blockbusters, School of Hard Sums, Dara O'Brien's Science Club and more. Now, Dara is back in Melbourne with his live show, So Where Were We?, which this year took out the Chortle Comedy Award for Best Tour, and to tell us about it, the stargazing road comic joins us now. Dara, welcome to Breakfast. It's a
6: pleasure to be here, and thank you for correctly saying the name of the show. So, pause. Where were? <laughs> oh, that, that has just thrown so many people. There was an Irish um, uh, website. One of the venues, the uh, one of the venues had done a So, where are we? Uh, which uh, is Which is it? like it's, it's a vibe I get it. it's It's a, it's a mood On a tour it's well, right, Exactly in that regard But it wasn't I didn't want to set the show up As being like I, am, I don't care Who are you people uh, Where am I now I don't care It's All Tuesday and What day is it So that's, that wasn't What I was going to It was supposed to be like Post-Covid yeah. You know Right, can we just start, can we just pick up where we left off? Can exactly. Can we just act right. like that, those two years didn't happen? And then it also became about, reu- the show is also about reunion, so it kind, of, it kind of works as a title. But the uh, but yeah, people do not say it correctly. Uh, so. You must
2: have been coming to Australia for a while. I think I remember my older sister taking me to a showcase at the Forum where you were MC with a brash American comic and... Uh, at the Athenaeum. That's right. At oh, the there Athenaeum.
6: You go. Excuse me. Yeah, because I did the festival here in 2000 and 2001. And then the whole plan was that I would keep coming back here because I loved it. I absolutely loved the city. Um, and... I- and to a certain extent, the country, but specifically Melbourne. Mm. Uh, and uh, and there was and, and I remember there's, there's a place I almost bought a flat here. So Yeah, at the t- genuinely, which should I have it's possible now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> says, I know. And I, I, I always say this is kind of a fun memory, and everyone goes, "Oh, because the prices are really high." <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, it's like, okay, I wasn't really. I want to say instead of regarding and say, "Oh, you must really like that," what a nice thing they go. What a failed opportunity <laughs> that was for you in terms to to, to purchase property <laughs> at a time when life. so it's. Just, it's so I become like the loser in the story <laughs> as opposed to the nice guy yeah. who wants to say it's a cool city uh, so, so I almost did that and then for some reason Orty the Irish television station three years in a row kept going no no don't go back to Melbourne we're definitely going to do something with you three years in a row and I missed three festivals in a row and then was in London by that stage and touring and, and so just and I didn't go back for years and, years and years and years and years and came back in 2017 and came back like some sort of time travelling man returning from 2001 going I should go to the hi-fi bar <laughs> and all of the people I know from the hi-fi bar would still be there and it will be amazing like, like an idiot right but Yeah. there's a line I used to tell a story about it and I had the line in it uh, about being 29 and then coming back at 46 and, and saying and all of the people who I knew were also 46 <laughs> like, and they weren't out at the hi-fi bar at 3 in the morning and I said and the line I used is, there was I mean there are lots of new 29 year olds but they don't want a 46 year old friend <laughs> And that was the, uh, yeah. So it was, was, look, it was lovely to be back, but it still felt like, oh. Yeah.
2: Do you keep a diary? I was reading your book, Tickling the English, and there's so much uh, detail about the audience.
6: Of the audience, I do every night. um, And it's partly that idea, you know, that that I can then maybe use it as something or or stories I can tell. But also within the show, like I talk to like six, seven people. We do 15, 20 minutes of making stuff up. uh, And then during the interval, I quickly write them all down. Yeah. So I don't forget them, and so I have like a thing down, and maybe I'll think of oh we could do that at the end, we could do this at the end, we could loop, loop the thing in because the second half is often much more on legs, is much more on wheels sorry than legs. The uh, it's uh, it's just much more here's a, here's a, here's a here's a long story I'm telling you, here's a long solid sixty minute block of a thing. So I'm not trying to do stuff off the cuff so if I bury the stuff in my head mm. at the interval then when I come back to the ending at the end it's I do the super medley uh, like <laughs> they do in every music where they sing the same the most famous song again four times with all the whole cast <laughs> out. That, that trick I basically go to the audience members and I said, and you remember him and you remember her and then there was a the man who did this like whatever and people genuinely think it's a, it's a wow you remember all that like and you're going i Bang them all down during the yeah, interval, yeah. and I, and you notice I never see any names. I always say, a, "The man who left a, tra- uh, a hat on a train." Once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, just, I remember the thing. It was about like the and then hopefully then you you can do a you can you can then top it mm. with some sort of extra thing. There was a guy in Dublin who uh, I said this is one of the first things done, just after the, after COVID, and I said, "Hey, what do you do?" And he says, "I'm a property manager." I said, "Oh, how many properties do you look after, or how many <laughs> do you manage?" And he said, three. and instantly the audience and me and therefore he realised that we all chose to think that I meant three flats rather than three buildings which is what he actually looked after but he went three and then his heart sank because everyone's laughing in the audience because they all went no we're going to choose to think that's three flats yes. and I went fine and I ran with that as well instead started going oh, you must be run off your feet uh, <laughs> and, and they take a really long thing about oh you must be saying to your do see that phone see that phone that never with the, with the three flats it never stops ringing with the complaints with the three flats at the end and then quickly we scribbled down the halftime at the end of the show you do the full long bit of the, of the actual part of the show the big story and all that kind of stuff and then at the end you go no don't forget don't forget and then at the end I said but look, this has been a difficult time for a lot of people. And we've seen people who've, who've, who've got us through this, who've been heroes in times of enormous stress. We've seen doctors, <laughs> we've seen nurses. But nobody, no stress. And the audience <laughs> are headed and it's so sweet. And they're all laughing and he's, his head is already in his hand. And said, then a man who manages three flights. And fair we stood up took the applause of the crowd Aye, <laughs> good like a you. legend took <laughs> the applause of the and then sat down again and the only thing I always remember that because the following day was in Ar- a rugby match Ireland were playing New Zealand uh, and 50,000 people are piling in to see this and I black some tickets uh, and I'm walking along and on a, there's a little bridge that goes over a, kind of a canal in, just near the stadium uh, and then we're, in the, we're piled into this little thing just benignly walking through a big crowd of people when a man turns out in front and goes and lifts up three fingers of goes, remember me from last night? No way. Yeah, same guy. Same guy in the crowd. Like, oh, yeah, so oh you, oh you've had
2: audiences play tricks on you, haven't you? The, the
6: front row? The occasion that you take, you know, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there was a uh, Welsh audience. I'm not sure if thing, the thing, uh, who um, I, I said, uh, you know, I, I, there was a guy who was a, he was a wildlife guide in Wales. And I said, oh, is there any wildlife in Wales? I said, what are you looking at? And he said, well, we have the pearl girl, and I said, Oh, what's the pergal And the whole audience was like, Oh, the purgle. He said, Purgle's very dangerous. So you'll always see signs saying warning of the pergal And I said, Oh, wow. And we had a whole thing about the pergal looked like and what the pergal was like, well, how dangerous it was, what the purgle would do. Uh, P-R-G-Y-L-L, purgle. Uh, and I said, Oh, and then the pergal the mysterious pergal And I had this whole thing. And they're all laughing along at this. They're gonna, and I'm going, Oh, I'm really in charge of this joke. I'm really making this, I'm making this joke happen. Oh, and then the pergal And then at the end, the purgle, right, And they blah, blah, blah. And they're all, they all love this. And then I walk out of the theatre, I get into the To drive home, I drive out, and the first sign I see the way the signs in Wales are bilingual, there's the Mm. Welsh language and English language. And the first sign I see says danger, and underneath Pergil, because Pergil is the Welsh for the word danger. Uh. Uh, And so it's on every, every road sign has Pergil danger written out in Wales. And it's on my own in the car, I went. Oh, oh, well done.
5: Yeah. <laughs>
1: I love how you're obviously really uplifting and inspiring your audience members to really seize and take their moment. Yeah, Good go, on to
6: them. Really, you <laughs> know, to really get me uh, yeah. in this situation. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's ideal. I, the, um, I mean, the last time we did Hamer Hall was in 2019. And <laughs> this is not a thing that I think they were delivering. Some guy said, Do your joke about snow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I got I, I nothing, nothing on snow, and so I had to do the normal show. And then at the end of every routine, we get the big round of applause. At the end, I get the big f- punchline, and I go. And of course, it was snowing so heavily. Like and I've no idea what the guy was thinking of. <laughs> no,
0: no room for clarification. No, no, no. no. Do, do,
6: do, do you know your stuff? Your snow routine. Do that snow do routine. Do it. Routine. it yeah. You know that snow routine you do that you're famous for. That you You know that you do that whole bit about snow that became like your signature. <laughs> He's like, nothing on snow. So we had to just, I had to, I had to put snow into the show oh. for his benefit. So yeah. that's how it
0: works now. If people come along and see your show, just shout out jokes you wish that Dara Roon had written. I would be delighted <laughs> if that
6: happened because it would take the, the the actual pressure on writing stuff is coming up with the initial bit. So if audience want to come up with the initial bit, mm. if they were to go, hey, isn't airline flight a bit right? Like, I'll go, that's great. Let's go have a look So yeah, oh no, no. I mean, even when you're talking to the audience, all you really want is You you don't want to say this explicitly You go I don't care what you actually do I don't care what Mm. your actual job is I'm looking for ra- a random word
0: material
2: yeah and
6: I'm kind of in a frantic online you know I <laughs> you're looking at me now I'm in a frantic kind of agitated stage so I'll say stuff so just say anything so <laughs> you I, honestly you can make it up like the uh, but instead people go oh I'm an accountant or whatever and I don't and I go, Any, anything anything, anything mm. you know I don't want to say you know honestly it is a I, it doesn't have to be true I, we're not this isn't the start of a relationship <laughs> we're, I'm not going to follow you home and check on this stuff anything at all just give me two random Words and then that's enough in the in the moment of just creating. You'll come up with something. Did you
0: did you think this kind of rush would ever been possible had you pursued mathematics?
6: No, it would have been a different rush. Uh, It (laughs) would have been a different, slightly more considered thing. The uh, because I only did I did in university for the degree and then never worked with it because (laughs) I ran away to the circus pretty quickly. The yeah, and it would have been you know very. I think the bit where you where you do that sort of professionally involves doing a PhD involves sitting in a room quietly coming stuff like fairly tough thing to do. So I have enormous admiration for people who do it because I need the thanks. I <laughs> I am quite happy to lead with that emotional that emotional lacking that I need the validation of <laughs> strangers, and I couldn't actually work on something quietly unless somebody every fifteen seconds is going, well done
5: <laughs> <laughs> You
2: must have cultivated an intelligent fan base uh, based on the comedy that you do and your curiosity about the world.
6: Yeah. I get it. I do get a dorky audience a, a lot of the time. The uh, um, and so there'll be plans to do gigs, and I will go, uh, and it'll be four types of engineers or <laughs> yeah. three types of scientists, whatever, and that would happen. And we did one in Geneva, and it was there were three different types of medical expert on one side of the room, <laughs> uh, and oh, in fact it was all stages. There was a woman who was just going into university. Her mother was a lecturer in university. There was a professor in the university. There was another. There was a like a surgeon. They would have this is, with super brain on one side, and I kept going to the side going you guys
5: are <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah.
6: look at that lot and i go back over the other side and we discuss you know the, you know the science of breathing or something uh. or whatever and I, and I go back to the other side and go oh,
5: oh. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing you say is going to be as good
6: as that.
2: How do you keep from resting on your clever laurels? Do you keep sharp academically?
6: Look, it's not like I have to you know keep up with the with stuff as it goes day to day and whatever. Look, I do do space documentaries and stuff like that, and for that you do have to keep across it. But I can't claim that I'm you know if you and there are bookings people do for you where you go no 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 you've got the wrong end of this. I you need somebody who's actively a scientist who is across what's happening a day to day in this field mm. not some guy who is kind of dorkily excited to be around scientists <laughs> and can yeah. translate them maybe I can do that mm. quite well so, uh, so I'm, I'm a good kind of every man of the public but knows enough about it kind of a thing mm. uh, so, I can, so I can carry that off but the uh, but no not yeah, I, I, yeah I'm i not I'm not you know swatting furiously to keep up with the stuff like the Grant. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Grand. I'm, you know
2: what about uh, the, as panel shows in the UK, and I'm not sure about Ireland, but at least UK panel shows have a reputation as just being the best.
6: It's, an it's a format that we the, the UK did uh, more than anyone else. There's, um, there's the only occasion when the only one that ran for a long time in Ireland was the panel because <laughs> I took it from here uh, and uh. went back to Ireland because I thought yeah, I, and I thought did it a few times back in 2000, 2001 and went this will work in Ireland. We can we were all able to talk like and we'll just sit around the table and people will come on and be close you know and so we did it for a, a decade they uh, over here but like that's non you know it's an unscripted very loose kind of a thing so and at the same time it was doing mock the week and there were like was such a weird shift in, in philosophy because Mock of the Week is to the, like they wanted every beat worked out really I mean it's, it got looser as it, as it went on um, and then but at the start it was like we, we'd like the producer were like well we, this, we're going to do this 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 and these are the topics we want to do, and we want to do exactly on this and it's very controlled it means it's a very tight entertainment product mm. but it may maybe lacked a certain personality um, and so there's different philosophies to it like whatever England certainly has done panels panel shows that's their that's their version of late night chat shows yeah Yeah. I mean your version of it is presumed, and I don't know if it's still the case is is like the panel of people sitting around in mm. make, make a much more loose conversational format. Australia does that very, very well. Mm. They, uh, whether it's footy or whether... The finest thing, when we came back to do the panel in... I brought back VHSs of the time I was on the panel and said, look, can we do this? I want to do this. And they, and they, cause they go, oh, what format? And I kept saying, do the panel. And it made everything look really, really well. And I gave them... I said, okay, we'll have a look at it. And I gave them a VHS of the show I was on, right? And the TV... the, the senior executives uh, in this Irish and said, uh, Right, I said, no, we're not going to go for it. I said, oh, why not? And they said, well, we looked at it and we watched it and we thought, I, I don't think an Irish audience will be that interested in Aussie rules football. No. And <laughs> John Howard. And you're going, you're oh kidding me. <laughs> We, we don't buy a script. from them. We just take Change the, the idea. You take the
1: AFL content, or you exactly. don't get That's the show. Business, an
6: entirely AFL show. It's an entirely footy-based show. Like if there isn't a certain minimum amount of it, but Geelong, and uh, the show isn't getting commissioned, like that. And they genuinely thought we were just going to take an Australian show with Australian content Blimey. and do it there. It
2: I mean, it's it, you uh, have re- said previously that you know Irish comedians haven't really even said hello in the first ten minutes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so culturally, what's that like? like seeing uh, seeing comedy become so uh, obviously finessed bite
6: sized and, uh, and short it's, it's a very American thing anyway th- and, like, and so for example we, on this trip I'll do uh, there's just for laughs gala in Sydney and we occasionally do these things and they're just this weird culture thing where they'll go it's seven minutes and we'd like to know in advance what the seven minutes is and we're going and I'm like I just recoil. Oh my god! Alright, fine. I'll write out a list of things. And I think it'll. I think it'll be this, and it'll have to be because that's what you expect. And it just takes all of the joy out of it the, uh, as a thing. The uh, it's kind of weird at the moment that in a kind of an Instagram-y, TikTok-y kind of thing, everything's very short clips, and everyone's about you know here's a here's an audience here's a shot of a shot of audience interaction. Audience member says one thing, he says one thing back at them. Big laugh. End of clip, and you kind of go. Ah no no! You do ten minutes, <laughs> yeah. But like, you can't post that stuff now. So so it's it is interesting the way it's shortening down to these kind of really truncated. Um, Bite sized pieces now. What if you, you know. did
0: deviate from that? If you said, Oh, here's my seven minutes, and then you got on stage and changed it, do you get in trouble? Well,
6: no, you know, absolutely not. I mean, like, I mean, maybe down the line, they'll go, oh, Yeah, he, well, you know, and sometimes it feels more critical. In Sydney, I wouldn't imagine it's any problem mm. at all. The, uh, but there is a TV one, I suppose, they want you to know that you don't go, Well, I, what, I, what I do is I, I defecate on stage <laughs> and run around like whatever They want have some sense of it like whatever. They, they'd actually, they're not idiots, they're but when you do it in America, they're a little bit more, you know, it's like, We're going to bring you out and we're going to rehearse this in loads of little clubs and then you're going to um. do it, like whatever doesn't really add anything to it um, as, as an experience or whatever it ends up and actually weirdly end up I did an I got like a terrible introduction uh, that they walked out uh, like with no sense of jo- the guy did a joke that the, I didn't get about a thing I'd, obscure thing I'd done so I walked out to total silence <laughs> uh, and you're going well, well I'm glad I did loads of little gigs through this. won it back but it was like they don't know me am in Canada so I'm, I I'm having to win it back and at the end posited on the thing that they didn't do anyway and I went oh no, no. it was weird so it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't always work. Yes. You can over you can over prep this stuff, mm. like the, uh, but it's a very American thing to go. I've got, I've got four and a half minutes on Letterman, so I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna nail this really tight. Whereas we probably, like yourselves, are wafflers and we talk in a big way, and we'll do Edinburgh, and Edinburgh's an hour, you know, and mm. these your basic unit of it is to. Right, I'm going to tell a story and the, the. I think I remember meeting this guy called Anthony Giselle, like, very very funny man, really beautifully crafted. T- t- dark one-liners like whatever and he was was, at a festival in dublin and somebody said to them yeah i've got 50 minutes and edinburgh's in a month's time i'll just i'll I'll bring it up to an hour and be fine and he was like how could you just do it you can't just bring it and they're going no you can (laughs) 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 because we'll just do an add an extra bit here and an extra bit there like we'll do more stuff but for an american that's like no that's 10 minutes i've got to spend a year writing that 10 minutes and getting it perfectly honed and sometimes the results that are astonishing but sometimes it's it's quite antiseptic and you know by comparison to what we're used to which is the looseness of telling stories and and, just, and, and, and imposing your personality more on it <laughs> all yeah, So sorry.
1: you would essentially turn up with, to Edinburgh with a few ideas but then work with the audience each Possibly, night Possibly I and mean
6: you, you, you'll, you'll want to be to that and like, when yeah. you do for you do a show like for example the Hamer Hall this is a 90 minutes of a thing and like the Hamer Hall, obviously this is a show 167 or something they're going to be doing tomorrow so it's the show the show is really there but you'll keep the looseness so you can have that and you can and you can let it be inf- infused by that, like whatever. Oh yeah, I mean, look, d- people like the idea of it being entirely improvised, but people would also like to think you've done some work. Of
5: course. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: finding yeah. 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 that balance. You're, a, like,
6: yeah, they, they you're a student
2: of theatre as well, and not. Uh, it seems like physical theatre. You appear to know what works.
6: It's <laughs> an interesting one because it's not. That's all just. Uh, I, the, one of the times I was here with a friend of mine, an Australian woman who's, uh, who teaches movement to opera singers. <laughs> because opera singers obviously learn standing at a piano yeah, the, uh, and they learn to sing the bop, 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 and they do that like standing at the piano then they get the gig and now you're in a marketplace uh, and now you're in a marketplace there's a hundred people going around people swirling around you're not expected to dance but you are expected to move and you're expected to do all that and she said that's kind of weird for them so we have to teach them that like whatever and she came along to the show we did in Hamer Hall about two tours back and said it's very different yeah it's really clearly an involved thing that you do that you you know you hold your arms in a particular way <laughs> to uh, to embrace the space like whatever's great but it's not a thing that. You know, that's very book learned, or, or how we would do this. But you just get used to playing slightly larger rooms. So, honestly, it comes down a lot to you stand at a slightly different angle. Yeah, In a right. slightly bigger room, you just know to tilt backwards a bit to it's open your like arms out a bit. Yeah, and you just kind of you, yeah because it's very if you if you go through it too quickly if you get a t- hit thing and suddenly you're in a room but you've only played little rooms and you occasionally comics who do this like whatever and they're they're all enclosed they're all kind of like because they've not gone through the rooms mm. if you know what I mean so they're like hi and they're holding the mic and they're really like hi it's going to be here here's my stuff like whatever but it's not like Striding and I'm not you like a walk around like a cougar or something, or like a <laughs> pastor, like whatever, but you still know how to stand in, in that in when you're fa- addressing that space of a room, like whatever you just get used to doing. Do you it. get
0: scared of it, nervous
5: anymore?
6: Yeah, a little bit still. Yeah, uh, yeah, a little bit. Not, not, you know, you know, it's going to work and all that, like whatever. They're not petrified anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's great. That comes back when you write the new show. Yeah, uh, it's great. You never quite lose that, but you want to be a little bit because it, it should matter. And on yeah.
2: writing, do you still, are you still a wine drinker to get going?
6: Yeah, that's still <laughs> is the <thing>. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> The uh, the the patented Darby technique is you open a bottle of wine, um, you drink the wine. Nothing much for the first couple of gla- glass. Three. Glass three, glass three, yeah, good idea. Glass four, great idea. Glass five, wasn't I great? <laughs> yeah. My <Yeah. laughs> like glass is like I used to be so good at writing <laughs> jokes, and now I can't remember how to write jokes anymore. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I'm at the point where this this tour is just ended because I've done like whatever the two years now. <laughs> so I have to go to the first phase of writing a new show, which is looking back at the old show, going that was so easy to write oh it just happened it just emerged perfectly and now it's difficult which I literally do every single time every time (laughs) I forget I go oh so easy the last shift I just just, it all just came out it all came out in one burst of no it really didn't and every time
1: but is your mind already kind of ticking there will you start to try and work in material no it
6: kills you no no it kills you to do new stuff that you can only do like if I come it would destroy me if I came up with a really great gag now at the at the 160 dates into the tour okay. and that has happened there was, a, there was one of the shows I think I remember on show 148 I realised oh this would work better if I swapped those two halves around and it, it you don't want to know drove it. me up the wall <laughs> I have a joke about hot feet um, and a, and going to the doctor with hot feet you do need to know <laughs> anything more than the premise of that like, <laughs> but it was a whole long 10 minute thing and then only recently I kind of brought it back in for some gigs, small gigs I was doing and I added a line to it about how you know you go to the doctor and they, you, you want them to go Oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I did that in second year. Yeah, you got to reboot your foot. You hold on your big toe and your little toe for 30 seconds and then it all finally gets. That line is always works and now the routine is from five years ago. So it's like, it's so irritating. I've come with a very good line uh, for a routine. That, well, that, hopefully, that'll be
2: hopefully you pick up a couple of bowls of red to help you with that. Yeah, just kind of. Australian red to help with the next show. So Where Were We is on... Uh, well you're travelling everywhere, uh Perth and Sydney. All and that the is Hamer Hall. Exactly. All that matters, All that matters, right matters now is Hamer, Hall. is Hamer Hall, Thursday, the sixteenth of November, head to Artcenter Melbourne.com.au. Uh what a great pleasure it is to have had you in studio, Dara. And
6: after delight, I'm sorry, you you may have wished to say something at some stage during the season. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, and that may have been an aspiration. You may have got into this job We've in got the order whole show. to talk. <laughs> Let's go yeah. ahead.
2: I did want to just quickly ask you have had Damon a tour manager, uh who you said. Say, stopped you making mistakes. Who do you have now?
6: To oh, Dame, now Damon's moved up in the operation, so he's no longer my tour manager. I have another tour manager, mm. uh, Martin, who's very good, uh, but who follows a, a football team who compete very heavily with my football <laughs> oh, right. team. Who's your football so team? Uh, I follow Arsenal. I yeah, and uh, he follows Man City. And so it's, it's, uh, we're in a very, we're locked in a whole thing mm. uh, at the moment. So, so, so that's, that's awkward. The, uh, I mean, pre a show in, I think it was in, uh, let's say Watford or whatever, that he had to, uh, had to come in and go and accept my gracious, congratulations on winning the league last May. And it was like, it was really tense. <laughs> so whether or not the, yeah, so that, that dominates our dynamic. The feuding yeah. tour manager, yeah, yeah.
2: brilliant. Uh, where, so where were we? Is the Arts Centre Darrow Breen. Thanks very much. And
6: absolute delight, lads. Thank you very much.
7: Triple R.
2: So, hello, my fortnight to have in Rio, the follically depleted fee ride. Morning, <laughs> fee. Good morning. Good morning.
7: Uh, how's our voice there? Let's crank fee up. There we go. Hello, hello. Oh. Yes, follicly depleted is a very fancy and Daniel way of describing that I have shaved my head. Hey. Uh, did a head shave for charity yesterday at school. Uh, um, yes, there's nothing more scary than giving small children sharp implements <laughs> and giving them free reign. Did they do it with the dinosaur scissors? No, <laughs> no. Uh, they did it with the with the hairdresser scissors, which made it scarier because no. they are even sharper. Um, but we raised five and a half, or not five, just under five and a half thousand dollars for Variety Club. Um, so if you also wish to see some, I haven't put all the photos up of the shaving yet, but my hair um, was long enough to, if I wore high waisted pants, it could end up being tucked into my pants. Not like grandpa high like I'm a millennial, so like reasonably. Anyway, my hair was very long, it is was. what I'm trying to say. And if uh, you wish to donate, I'm being very uh, opportunist. Go for um, it. You can go to my Instagram, fi underscore reads, and there is a link in my bio if you wish to chuck us some dollars. It's all tax deductible. The hair's gone to make wigs for kids with cancer and alopecia. Variety do good stuff, they're good. Thank you. That's, my, you. that's my that's my plug. Thank Beautiful you. work. Um, now, the reason I'm actually here is to talk about Melissa Broder's new book, Death Valley. It is a brand spanking new release. Um, I received it in the post last Thursday, which um, based on the fact that I love Melissa Broder's writing. Oh, it's out by Bloomberry too, by the way, I should say. I love her writing so much um, that I chucked out my previously planned book review book and really? went thursday Thursday night, I got in and I was like, this is happening cool. this is this is the review based purely on how strange and delightful her other books have been. so um, she tends to write about. Uh, confused or what some may call complicated women experiencing something incredibly intense but also unrealistic. So um, the best example of that would be in her novel The Pisces where she's a woman house-sitting I think it's like off the coast of LA. Um, She's right near the beach and she meets a merman slash siren um, and he tries to convince her to run away and live with him in the ocean. And it's written totally straight-faced and I, I hesitate to use the genre magical realism because that's often um like associated with different cultural writings in particular. And I often also personally, magical realism doesn't necessarily resonate with me because I find it very hard to enter into this kind of like straight-faced approach. Um but her writing just takes it just far enough for me. And that brings me to this book, Death Valley. So we meet an unnamed protagonist as she's che- checking into the best Western motel in, a Cali- in the California desert.
2: Which is where Death Valley
7: is. Which is where De- Death Valley is, yeah. And she's there ostensibly to, to finish her novel. Um, and it's because of this particular detail that she's there to finish her novel that it makes me go – it made me feel for large chunks of the book that this was an autobiography because an author writing about an author just, you know – and then it just kind of um, – it got a bit – it got very Charlie Kaufman mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kind of at points. Um, Eating itself. Yes, exactly. Um, she's there and she leaves LA because her father is in ICU and he's cr- terribly, terribly ill. And she also has a chronically ill husband with who's ill with an unknown illness. And she just needs time to get away from them, get out of her own head and finish her book. And much of this book is spent recounting FaceTime and phone calls with her family. Sometimes her father is in ICU and unconscious and the nurses are, like, handling the phone. Her husband and his illness and her mother, her sister. And each character you only kind of meet vaguely via a phone call, but I often found myself feeling like I was really intruding and like I was eavesdropping on these calls. It was how uh, viscerally connected you are to the main character. And we experience... It's about three or four days, the course of this novel, and it's kind of like a stream of consciousness. We're very much living in her internal monologue, and she writes with this, it's hilarious and weird self-deprecating approach. Um, And so she's there for her book until she goes for a hike and she encounters a magical, mystical cactus that shouldn't be in this part of the desert. She's, she's checked on Reddit with the desert cactus forums. This type should not be here. People are very heated about it online. Wow. Um, she feels drawn to the cactus, enters it, and while is inside the cactus, has a strange hallucination regarding her father as a child. She tells others of this cactus that know the area and they're sceptical, disbelieving, and that sends her out on a journey to prove that it's real and sends her back out into Death Valley. Um, yeah, so there you go. Questions? Does it
5: just?
2: Well, it's not actually that unusual. Uh, there was a guy in Toowoomba, I think, he had a three-meter cactus fall
7: on him yesterday. <laughs> uh, only you would know that. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Melissa Broder is devastated with that particular piece of news.
1: Does it pull you out of the story at all when it's no? Because start more she
7: she approaches it as someone. Who is like? What is happening? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So th- when she sees the cactus, she's like, "That's pretty weird." I thought these these because it's like one of the the tr- like the the cartoony, you know, the big arms mm. waving. I'm doing this as though it works on radio, <laughs> anyway. Um, it's like at like, the
2: front of a car dealership.
7: Yes, exactly. The inflatable tubey arm guy. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those ones. And the way she decides to enter enter it is, uh visceral um but it's like the cactus has invited her in but she's simultaneously confused Mm -hmm. so the fact that she's like what is this doing here also what is this and she just kind of it's all very strange to her so if she was like yes of course this is always supposed to be here and everyone just hangs out inside cactuses like Mm -hmm. boab trees like you know that would be a very different thing but the fact that she is a skeptic also makes it interesting um, and simultaneously it, it covers a lot of, um, other, I, I always, um, I can never say the word, but anthropomorphizing stuff. So she speaks to the desert and the desert speaks back. So she befriends specific rocks and ha- they have names and she has full conversations with them. They speak to her and offer her advice and feedback. And I begin to get annoyed with the protagonist because the rocks are giving really good advice and she's not following <laughs> The advice of the rocks. So <laughs> it, it also just this, this whole coverage of the value of isolation and being alone mm. versus the concept of loneliness, and it does it via conversations with rocks and hallucinations of cacti. So is there a touch of like, the
2: all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy? It's uh, like is, the, is our main
7: character losing their mind here? or? He, mm, I wouldn't – I don't feel like she is – And I don't think that's Melissa Broder's intent. Mm -hmm. I think that um, the cacti symbolises grief and loss. Um, And especially considering the fact that the protagonist is there grieving people who are still alive and things that are still with her. You know, she's grieving her husband's health. He's still alive. Um, But his sense of humour is the thing that keeps her going. And so this very strange incident is now, as it's happening, she's thinking about how she'll recount this to her husband and make it a really funny sure. anecdote. So sure. she's kind of preemptively thinking about this. Um, she's grieving her dad, um, but her mom is so militant about not expressing that in case it curses him that you feel this insane fr- frustration. And there's this amazing subplot that kind of partially occurs in the cactus with the mum, with the fact that the protagonist bought some tracksuit pants on Amazon, assuming her dad would need them when he went to rehab. (laughs) But her mum thinks it's bad luck to buy the tracksuit pants before he's in rehab, so she makes her return them, but she's in a cactus. (laughs) Um, So it's this weird, hilarious, mundane, but also this really warm mirror held up to people grieving and... It offers kindness and understanding while they process loss and it happens in the cactus. Wow. Cool. Wow. Come on, Bendy. I know. It sounds so um, cool. I, I also should say if you are familiar with Broda's work, her work is very well known for being quite smutty. Um, this is not that. She's stepped away from that pretty considerably. Um, uh, though though the cactus entering does have some moments where you're like, Hmm. Okay. Um, the cactus is sexy. <laughs> well, like she's she's pretty articulate at that point. Let's just say that. Okay. Um, and it feels more considered to me than some of her other works. Um, so if you lo- if you read Melissa Broder before and you're like, "What is this woman on?" I'm I'm sick of the smart. Death Valley might be for you. However, if you're only in Melissa Broder for the smart, this may not be the book for you. Um, So I just, I thought it was really important to say she's still within her own specific genre of writing style, but um, she has changed things. I found it a really fascinating, strange book. Um, Not, no, no, I'm not going to say the book that I was planning on reviewing, but uh, no shade to that one. But this is... Such an interesting and strange book. I I couldn't I couldn't put it down. I read it in two sittings. Wow, yeah. there's a
2: theory on the text line that the author was on psychedelic cactus. <laughs>
7: <laughs> oh well yes, that is that's that, that checks out. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, we've been talking about Death Valley. It's hot off the press. Maybe one of your favourite authors, obviously.
7: Yeah, like, yeah, The Pisces is so strange. I love it. All it's
2: right. Great. Uh, it's by Melissa Broder and out via Bloomsbury. Bloomsbury. Yep. Beautiful. Fair right. Congratulations and thanks. Thank you.
0: Triple. Ah.
2: Matt Lutton is a theatre maker, opera director, playwright, and dramaturg who has been artistic director of Black Swan Theatre Company. And whose previous works include The Jewel for STC, Make No Noise for the Bavarian State Opera, Don't Say the Words for Sydney's Griffin Theatre Company, and Harold Pinter's Mountain Language. In 2015, Matt was appointed artistic director of The Malt House and is behind The Hour of the Wolf on Now, an immersive production set in the fictional yet familiar Hope Hill. And to tell us about the spooky production, the director, who this year Received an Order of Australia Medal for Services to the Arts joins us now. Matt, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, it's a bit spooky, isn't it?
3: It's a little bit spooky, but not mm. too spooky. We don't want to scare people off.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, it's dead set spooky, <laughs> okay. which, is, which is absolutely the intention. <laughs> okay. um, and how? So it's set between 3 and 4 a.m. Yes, yeah. And in what ways is it, the Hour of the Wolf immersive?
3: Uh, well, the idea of Immersive is really that uh, you can choose what stories you want, to, uh, what you want to follow. So at the beginning of the show, you start in a room, you get introduced to these characters at 3am, and after about five minutes, your narrator tells you in your headset, uh, who do you want to follow? You want to go to the church? Do you want to go to the convenience store? Do you want to go to a car crash? And you have about ten seconds to decide, the and then you split and move to a different room, and Whoa. the different stories start. So it's like a classic choose your own adventure. Mm-hmm.
5: Uh,
3: but after about twenty minutes, uh, you arrive at four a.m., and the narrator says, "We're going to turn back time, and you can do this all again." Oh. So you can go back and keep reevaluating your choices and sort of collecting like a scavenger hunt all the stories that are happening around Hope Hill. And
2: what feedback are you getting?
3: Uh, we, well, the audience get very, very excited, first of all. There's this adrenaline. Uh, I'm actually really pleased with the feedback because also people saying there's so much to do but we're in the hour we're usually able to see it all. So there's a bit of a trick in the sense that you actually can't see everything and I think that's part of the adrenaline of how much can you capture in that time. But I hope I think we've got the balance right.
2: Mm. It
1: raises the stakes. You're like, oh, I've got to make the right decision. Yeah. Choose the right person to follow.
2: Yeah. And what? how have you tweaked it? You must have tweaked it mm. in millions of ways but what do you think was a significant tweak based on your observation of how it was it's been received
3: um i mean the tweaks have been about making sure the rules are really clear like for the audience because i think there's that people need to feel comfortable they know what to do they you know they need to know that the actors aren't going to turn and talk to you and ask you to role play with them or they're not going <laughs> which you know some
2: people want uh, but you yeah. need to set those rules up
3: yeah
4: carefully. And
2: that'd be some people's worst nightmare exactly um oh, yeah.
1: I was just going to say, do you get many people trying to roll play with the actors? Well,
3: you do. Because yeah. people. Well, because people get enthusiastic. Yeah. I think people get involved with the story, you know, and a, a phone will ring in the scene and, and the actor will be going, where's the phone? And an the audience member will want to find it for you mm-hmm. and hand it to you and help. So we really embrace enthusiastic audience members, but we also set up rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also there's another layer of the story about puzzles. So that there's a, the story itself is very contemporary, but if you want to know the history of the town what happened 200 years ago in Haunt um, Hope Hill, you need to do these puzzles which can unlock an extra character and a whole other sort of part of the narrative. And some audience members can get very focused on the puzzles. So the actors have a challenge going, if the some audience members might not be listening to me, they might be more engaged with a game logic that's playing out here. Uh, and so we have to create an environment where all those can exist simultaneously.
1: I've recently just played Mafia for the first time. It's kind of got an element of that. I don't know, know like Mafia. That- Or like that role-playing game where you have to figure out – there's like five or six of you, and you have to figure out who's murdered someone
3: anyway. Oh, awesome yeah. game,
1: yeah! So, I imagine there would be a lot of people who are fans of games like that who would love this show and return to it. I imagine,
3: yeah, yeah absolutely. Actually, I bumped into someone the other night who this is the third time seeing the show, mm-hmm. so it was really sort of going deep <laughs> into it.
5: Yeah.
3: Um, but no, I think if you have a you know a love of gaming, then this show is exactly aligned with those instincts because it uses that logic of uh, you you could it's a role playing game, you can go and choose what you want to follow, you spend as much time as you want uh, and the more explore, the deeper it goes.
2: And now the set design, how mm. intricate and involved does it get and how much are your fingerprints in on what we see visually with your oversight? Uh,
3: the design is an enormous part of the show. I've been really involved with it. Uh, so Anna Cordingly and Corinne Lachey were the two core designers of the show. So we've built 12 locations from Hope Hill. They're like filmic sets. They're completely real. Wow. So, you know, like in, in the laundromat, you know, not only, of course, there's the things you expect in a laundromat, but all the missing signs and all the pamphlets that are there are all designed and sort of have little stories of the people in Hope Hill. Um, if you go into the bedroom and you go through the drawers you can sort of see what everyone's reading and find all their sex toys and everything (laughs) laid out so like it's sort of every detail has to go uh really really deep into the set because that's what immersion is about that you if you kept exploring and pulled open the drawers then you will find real not just photocopied information actual real tangible history of the people that live there
2: and technically an audience member is wandering around with a headset
3: Mm. Yeah, this, this was our big new sort of step, I guess, in this show compared to the last one where the audience wear infrared headphones and they respond to where you move. So when you move uh-huh. from location to location, uh, they give you a different soundtrack. Uh, there's a narrator that's helping guide you. But also then if you find special nooks and areas, then that's where you can hear audio that's only available if you find the spot to stand mm. in.
2: And how do you feel like you've personally upskilled uh, throughout Hour of the Wolf putting this together. Um, your CV is obviously intense <laughs> and extraordinary. In what way has this challenged you? Uh, look, I think
3: one of the biggest challenges is actually um, the taking care of the performers because mm. this is a, it's a huge it's a really confronting uh, process or p- way of performing because the audience are very present to you. They're unpredictable. They will jump up and down on the bed. Uh, why you're trying to do a very serious scene, so, which is part of the joy for the audience but also a challenge for the actors. So I think a big thing about this for me has been about how to um, sort of introduce this sort of uh, approach to a, a cast and how to make them feel empowered to be able to do it and mm. not feel disturbed by the audience doing, having fun around them. Is
2: there multiple shows a day?
3: Yep. So- We do uh, two shows and sometimes three shows a day. Even on Saturdays, we sometimes do four or five shows a day. So, (laughs) wow. Yeah, there's a lot of. um, Well, we do so many shows because. It's intimate for an audience. We only Mm. let 120 people in at a time. Ah, true. And because that's how many people moving around a space, too many more people than that, and it creates traffic jams. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also it's the power of being intimate. It's like 10 people and one actor in a room is a really exciting, intimate experience. So we don't want the uh, audience size to be uh, so many, hence a lot of shows.
2: And the risks for you and for the production, is that what makes it exciting to attempt to execute?
3: Um, there's an excitement in the – yeah, there's a risk, there's an ambition. There's always a bit of saying, uh, this show's crazy, we're never going to be able to do it and to pull it off. But also what I love about this is the it brings, it's brings been bringing in a whole audience that don't often come to the malt house or don't often come to theatre. Right. So there's, a, there's an attraction to the subversive nature of it, I think, that you're not going to sit in your seat and be spoken to. Mm. You can choose. <laughs>
1: what was what? the first show like? Because obviously, like – the immersive element is such a big part of the show, like people yeah. coming and interacting. How do you prepare a show like this?
3: It's all, the first show is always terrifying yeah. <laughs> because you just don't know what anyone is going to do. Um, and always the uh, thing I've started to learn is that the audience are always unpredictable they're consistently unpredictable. Yeah. <laughs> so when it, if you thought that they were all going to pick left – Guarantee you, they'll pick right and forward. Like there's, there's a sort of sense of somehow the psychology of the group dynamic always changes. So the first show is a lot of adrenaline, mm-hmm. and a lot of processing afterwards.
2: Yeah, I can imagine. Have you had to regulate the appeal of certain characters so they don't hog the crowd? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no,
3: no, we haven't yet. No, haven't had to. Um, no, no, we don't, we don't try and create a hi- hierarchy.
5: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: There was there one fantastic story, though, because um, some audience members forget that the actors can hear you. <laughs> and so there was an actor doing his fantastic scene and an audience member stood right next to him and pointed at him and said, I used to have a crush on him.
2: Wow. And he
3: just had to keep going in the scene going, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> and he was also going, used to. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: uh, now, you're off to Canberra.
3: Yes, I'm Mm. off to camera in a few hours where um, the executives from all the major theatre companies around the country were up to chat with the Arts Minister and do some advocacy for the theatre community.
2: What does advocacy look like in... 2023 for, theater, for the theatre
3: community? Oh, for for theatre, that means basically it's, it's trying to get it on, you know, raise awareness, There's actually a big talk about the impact that's happening at the creative Australia and the funding that's occurring and look mm-hmm. at how that funding can be increased, uh, but also just looking at what other incentives
2: that really the government can be thinking about mm. uh, to make sure artists are being cared for. And what is a hit? And this is, let's call it a hit because it is. <laughs> uh, what does a hit like Hour of the Wolf do for theatre? do you think, in Australia? Or what do you... Let, and if you find that too awkward, imagine someone else directed it. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: I mean, I think a hit at the moment... I mean, I still think we're in a bit of a recovery period after COVID. Like mm-hmm. that, that's still inevitable. Um, but also I think it's about falling in love with live performance again. I think yeah. what is so great about Hour the Wolf is it's just... I feel like um, anyone that's felt like I've been seduced by screen culture goes, wow, this is different because being in a room with live performers... Colleagues from Melbourne performing for you is a really unique experience. So I'm hoping it uh, elevates live experience across whatever the art form, music or theatre is, and gets people out there.
2: Uh, and do you believe in mystical wolves, or do you have a <laughs> do you have a bit of a spooky bent to you that indulges uh, oh, I, I, these horror lore? I
3: love spooky things. I really, lo- I actually. Uh, I love making people get, uh, make, make them scream in the theatre. <laughs> There's something fantastic about getting scared in the dark. Um, some people don't like it. But um, we made a show, we did an adaptation of Picnic at Hanging Rock about five or six or seven years ago and unintentionally the audience screamed in the dark in one of the scenes. And from then on I've been, oh, I love this adrenaline. Chasing <laughs> that scream. I'm, I'm chasing it. And, yeah. and the way it makes people really lean in and focus and, it makes it a memorable experience.
2: Yeah. Well, if you want to chase the screen, hopefully you've reserved that with Tony Burke, you know, get him horrified later on today, the Arts Minister. Hour of the Wolf is on at the Malthouse until December 17th. It is, yes. Head to malthousetheatre.com.au. It is a extremely, uh, this is a tautology, an extremely unique production uh, and well worth checking out. It's directed by Matt Lutton, who's been in the studio with us this morning. Thanks very much, Matt. Thanks for having me.
7: Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. I'm
2: hungry, I want something to eat. Something
8: with a crunch
2: and very sweet. For my traveller and restaurant hat dispenser, Michael Harden joins us to wet our appetites and loins. Morning, Michael.
8: Good morning. How are you?
2: Really, really swell. You need to wet our loins. <laughs> I know. I'm right? I'm
0: unaware. I was unaware of that. Anyway, welcome. <laughs>
8: Uh, where are we going? Uh, well, I think uh, as we, given the current times, we could all use a drink. <laughs> um, and it's coinciding with Australian Gin Day, which is on Saturday the 18th of November. So um, I think it's our patriotic duty to uh, learn a little more about gin and have a few cocktails nice. on the, on the weekends. So, you know, I can and, get and re- realise out. that there's something good about life as well as <laughs> the, the rest of the stuff. Honestly. So Yeah, so... Um, it's sort of like it's a good thing, like, you know, Australian gin has become a thing in itself. I think as everybody has noticed, the, you know, the, the explosion of it, it was sort of like, you know, you're just looking at um, the different, like, there was like, there's around about 300 gin distilleries in Australia at the moment, and they're making around 800 different varieties of craft gin. Um, just sort of to, to show how incredible that explosion was, it was like in uh, 2014, there were 28 distilleries so it's kind of like you know it is absolutely exploded so it's kind of I was like interested in kind of like thinking looking at why it sort of already happened and there was sort of like you know this like cultural and financial and even legal reasons like I think that like you know start off with the legal reasons like back in the 80s there was a there was a law in Australia that you couldn't have you couldn't have a distillery that was smaller than 2,400 litres and like you know most of the craft distilleries uh, that we've got in Australia their stills are you know starting at around you know sometimes between 15 and 20 leaders. Is that so no one muscled
2: in on the big boys? Yeah
8: so it was like you know that was why the only rum that we knew was Bundaberg and those Uh sort of things you know so it was like so um, Bill Lark who was one of the first distillers, a Tasmanian guy, the, the Lark distilleries in Hobart and so he challenged this in the court and it got overturned and so it sort of opened up and he was mainly interested in whiskey but of course other entrepreneurial people sort of saw the the, um, the advantage of, of this law and took it themselves, particularly with gin, because the thing is the financial side of things is with whiskey and things like rum, there's a lot more involved in it because it needs to be aged. And so then you need barrel rooms, you need barrels, you need time, you know, because, like, rum has to have several years before it can be called rum and whiskey even more. You kind of really need to have it in a barrel for at least 10 years. Whereas
2: gin, you just need a bathtub?
8: Gin, you just (laughs) need a bathtub and a
5: glass.
8: (laughs) Scoop it out and off you go. And, uh, yeah, so it was sort of like, so, and gin is like, it's a a read reasonably easy drink to make but at the same time it was kind of like gin was also at the at the time sort of unfashionable which is where we come we come into the cultural stuff because it was all about vodka you know if you're looking if you're doing a white spirit it was sort of vodka and vodka and everything and it was like super trendy and gin was kind of considered like you know the the grandma's tipple sort of thing you know and um and then it just sort of i think it it hit at the same time as the small distilleries happened, it hit at a time when there was, like, the rise of craft beer and it was sort of that whole DIY hipster, you know, kind of like let's set up the distillery and the converted stable kind of moment, you know, sort of the beardy, arty, but it also had that kind of witchiness to it, sort of like, you know, where there was a there was like a herbal kind of concoction to it because you've got, you know, angelica root and, you know, licorice and, you know, all of this sort of stuff that I think kind of just appealed to a certain um, demographic or a certain kind of cultural moment that people were having where they wanted was sort of like, let's get back get back to the earth and all of that sort of stuff. So gin sort of really tapped into that as well. Um, some might say that Australians got a little carried away with the herbal <laughs> side of things because it was like, you know, it was started off like everything is, gin is always juniper forward. And juniper itself is kind of great because it's sort of like a bit of a witchy kind of, you know, kind of druidy kind of thing. Because it is, like, juniper is actually a, um, it's actually a pine cone, okay. and um, but it, with the pine cone on the inside with a fleshy outside. So it, that's why it has that sort of piney, woody, fresh green sort of characteristic that we know, like, that represents gin. You smell it and you think gin. Um, And so, you know, that juniper's always been that part of Australia, but Australians, being Australians, like to sort of experiment with different things, and of course then there was the rise of using indigenous um, plants and, and herbs and stuff, and so, you know, you've got things like lemon and anise myrtle, and you've got native pepperberry, and you've got all the eucalypts, it's like strawberry gums and all of those sort of stuff, which... Is all very fine, but a lot of the time you it can be a little overwhelming in a gin because I think one of the great qualities of gin is that sort of it does have that herbal quality, but it's also got a clean th- through line, which why it makes such a good drink in a martini, and. Um, and I think some of like you know, as a, a friend of mine, a bartender a friend of mine um, described. He said like you know, a lot of gin is like drinking an Esop product. You know, there's so there's so much, so much going on that sort of like so you know, some of the I like some of the cleaner ones. I like you know, the Lark, the Lark gin is is sort of like a classic. Sort of like you know, when you're talking classic, I'm thinking London Dry. So you're thinking like the big sort of international ones so like it's Tanqueray and Beefeater and those mm. sort of ones Plymouth and and gins like that. So I think in Australia I think it's Australian gin day I think it's our duty to yes. support some of those. I like so some. like we're looking at you know maybe Lark, Bassam Flinders which is a, it's a long standing one on the Mornington Peninsula. I'm going really local here Patient Wolf which is actually Brunswick. Mm, cool. Um, and then our Melbourne Gin Company. Which is a really good classic one as well. But you know, let's let we can Archie a couple of step out of the state. We can go Archie Wolf is a is a really good Jim brand as well, which is in Sydney and um, Hartshorn, which I, I really enjoy, which is made at a um, cheese making factory in Tasmania called um, Grand View, and uh, they use the leftover whey from there. They, they make sheep's cheese and they use the leftover whey to, to make the base spirit. There. Well, so it's like, and it's a really, it's actually, it sounds kind of gross. Is like that unusual you might be sort of way? cheesy. Hmm?
0: Is it unusual to cheese whey to make a spoon? Yeah,
8: it's sort of, well, it, it is in the sort of general scheme of things because a lot of the kind of like the base spirits, a lot of it's made out of, you know, usually made out of grapes or Plants, you know, potatoes actually. or, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. So whey is sort of a different one, but they used they use it really well. They do it, they actually do a really good vodka as well mm. there. So, um, so those are the ones that I'd used. And I, I guess, um, you know, we're kind of thinking about how we're going to use this. So it's sort of like, you know, um, cocktail-wise, I think. But uh, there's always a bit of an argument, is a gin and tonic a cocktail or is it just a mixed drink? But I think that there should be enough, as much care put into your gin and tonic as you would put into a cocktail because there is a really big difference between a good gin and tonic and a bad gin and tonic because... you, you know that you've, you've had a bad gin and tonic before somewhere where somebody doesn't really care. It's like a, probably a tap tonic, that sort of stuff. And it's kind of like it's just it, – it's fine, but it ends up just a little bit bland and, you know, whereas a, a gin and tonic should really be like wake up your senses and kind of be really clean and, like, it's actually really good with food, mm-hmm. you know, particularly if you've got food with a bit of spice in it or, you know, sort of anything sort of seafoody with some citrus in it, sort of any kind of raw seafood with a bit mm-hmm. of lemon. Or lime on it, that sort of stuff. It's even really good when you're looking at hot food as well. Like it's great with an Indian curry. It's great with a Thai curry with mm. a bit of spice to it because it's got that sugar in it that will um, cut through. So it's sort of like – so pay attention to your gin and tonic. The number one rule is to always make sure that like, that the tonic is cold because if you use warm tonic, it will go flat much easier the bubbles don't last in warm tonic like it's sort of like the coldness will preserve the bubble in your Mm. tonic so ideally it's small bottles um that you keep in the fridge and use as you need um if you're you know serving a bunch of people then you can go for a larger bottle but Mm. it's um that's where uh, um you probably want to go the other one is keep your gin in the freezer because gin is always really good cold it never freezes, and it sort of comes a little syrupy it's great when you're talking martinis as well, because you've got you're starting off with a base frozenness.
2: Now how interesting is that? People automatically put a bottle of vodka in the freezer mm. and I would argue, as you've intimating, don't for gin.
8: Yeah. Yeah, no. Nah, now it's sort is of that like,
2: another cultural? Yeah, yeah,
8: yeah. Hangover. Put your gin, like keep your gin in the in the freezer, you know, because it's like it does it. It just it goes a little syrupy. Is the only thing that happens, mm. but it's absolutely brilliant. Because you know, one of the one of the great places in Melbourne to get a martini is Caretaker's Cottage. It's just been it was one of the um, two Australian entrants on the world's fifty best bars list recently. It's a fantastic bar in the city, very small, so it's hard to get into, but they do a premix martini there that they keep in the freezer. So, you know, you order a martini and it'll come out at a frozen temperature really quickly every time and it's one of the best martinis I've ever had so it's kind of like oh. you know I think you know always keep your gin in the freezer because it's great for your gin and tonics because then it's going to preserve the coldness of the bubble in the tonic as well so it's mm. going to be really really clean.
1: And going back to the classic gin and tonic so okay really cold tonic what about do you do citrus do you do cucumber? Ah, it,
8: that depend, like it depends on your own um, palette. personal palate like some people will like there's, there's all the gins will say this is better with our gin this better with, but you know, you kind of like, for me, it sort of attends on the mood that I'm in. Citrus is always great. Yep. You can, lemon, probably the least interesting of them all. Lime, I really like, I think, because it's like a little less, a little less tangy, does a a little less acid, so Mm -hmm. it's good. It sort of like taps into the, the sweetness, but still with a bit of acid. Grapefruit. Is fantastic, particularly mm, pink grapefruit. Mm-hmm. Is fantastic. Um, also, really happy with like I love cucumber. Yeah. So slices of cucumber are fantastic. Really refreshing. It sort of adds that sort of softness to it. Also, things like um, rosemary is really good. So particularly, you can team like put a little sprig of rosemary in with particularly if you're going to use grapefruit, mm-hmm. and that's a really nice sort of herbal Ooh, thing to add to nice. as well. So it's like because it's nice because it sits at the top of the glass, and so you're also getting the whiff of rosemary coming into, you know, sort of into the whole taste combination. So um, that that's kind of what I'm really, you know, I really like that as well. Mm. So um, I think uh, the other thing, you know... T- doesn't have to be a tall glass. Like, it's a, again, it's up to you as to how you want to drink it. Like, if you're just wanting a bit of a thirst quencher, then, of course, tall glass, you know, kind of more tonic than gin. But it's also – you can also do it in a short glass and sort of have it – like, this is sort of more probably for the martini drinker end of the spectrum that likes the taste of a straight – like, the straight taste of gin. So, you know, have, you know, more gin and then just a splash of tonic or sort of a couple of splashes of tonic so that you kind of even it up. A little bit more, so it's kind of like you know. There's there's very like this is why I think that um, a gin and tonic sort of falls into the category of a cocktail because you just you just you're just not tossing it together. You have to putting a little bit of thought into it. I
2: don't want to wade into controversy, but as summer approaches, is pims is in the uh, is it gin adjacent? Is it
8: pims? I love, mm. absolutely love pims, and I think it's sort of like it's time for pims to have a resurgence. It's okay. like it's it's got a little bit like you know it's sort of like among sort of people that like to you know go to cocktail bars that are caring about these things. There's, there'll, there'll usually be some sort of summery pims thing because that's again you know some cucumber, and then you can either go to it's sort of like lemonade it's or low you can, alcohol. Or, alcohol. Or yeah. yeah, yeah, low alcohol. It's got a little bit of ginger. You know, ginger beer is good with it. You know, it's like lots of different things there. I'm I'm a big fan. Mm-hmm. We'll of, do
1: pims yeah. often. on. Christmas Day, it's good to kind of just like, yeah,
8: not yeah, because it just sort of, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not a, yeah, <laughs> whack your head off the first drink of the day, <laughs> you know. <it's> <laughs> of, kind of,
0: Quick question I know it's not a, this isn't a text in segment, but someone, can gene go off? Can it go off? No, 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 no. okay, no. Right. So,
8: like, like a lot of our alcohols, it could sit there forever, and if you've got it in your freezer, it's just sort of a little, little gift waiting to be unwrapped <laughs> mm-hmm. every time.
2: And Junipalooza was on recently, like the yes. showgrounds, yes. and they, that to me is a, I don't know, does that embody the absolute explosion?
8: Absolutely. You know, it's kind of like I, th- I think it's fantastic that people are that interested in gin and it's kind of like, yeah, of course it's, a you know, getting a little tanked and having a nice time and everything, but it's sort of like people actually are invested in different gins and, you know, it's sort of like you can have conversations about what you like and what you don't like. There's some sort of really popular brands of gin in Australia that have done really, really well that are not my bag at all and I've argued with with people over this and, uh, you know, kind of like I like a bit of a heated argument over a gin and tonic, Uh, you know, cool things down. uh, But, um, yeah, no, I think, you know, it's just so it's like and the fact that we have an Australian Gin Day I think says something about it as well, not that it's like hugely widely known uh, holiday with, mm. you know, costumes Not and traditions. Not to be traditions. confused
2: with World Gin Day. World
8: Gin Day. Yeah. Well, oh, v- and there's, bad, you know, right. I think there's World Gin Week <laughs> as well. So, <laughs> so I think we're just slowly moving towards World Gin Year. Exactly. And uh, we'll be good. Well, let's
2: start with the Gin Summer coming up. Michael yeah. Harden, lovely as always. Thank you. No worries. Woo! Ah,
8: that's right. Triple R.
1: You're both aware of how overly keen I have been to meet and get to know my neighbours since moving in to the new building. Um, I have met them all, but since I think I last spoke about it, which I think was me stalling in the hallway Mm -hmm. to meet them, there's been very little interaction. I think I passed apartment number three in the hallway or in in the door, this week and it was a lovely exchange, just really warm, left feeling great. But other than that, there's been nothing.
0: What was so warm about these?
1: Oh, it was just a lovely smile because oh, I, awesome. I was starting to get a bit paranoid. I was like, oh no, oh, God, I hope my neighbours like me. I oh, hope they haven't heard me talking about them on the radio. <laughs> um, but I and then she smiled and I was like, no, we're all good. We're mm-hmm. golden here because of the lack as well. Because of the lack of. Um, crossover in the stairwell I 110% have been running up and down the stairs in pajamas too by oh, the way okay so just to flag that that's that's you happening know
0: it's, it's safe now
1: it's totally safe and I'm fine with it even if I was to bump into someone but regardless of that um, I'm definitely feeling like I need to kind of reinvigorate the campaign to get to know their neighbours. So you can imagine my absolute delight Mm. when I received an email this week from the real estate agent reminding us all of midnight. They're like, hey, guys, just a bit of a reminder. It's Wednesday night. We've noticed there's been a few instances where it hasn't been put out. And I was like, well, 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 I had no idea. In the last apartment building that I lived in, There was like a property manager, someone from Body Corp who did it and was very passionate about it. So I assumed someone else was doing it and so – You hadn't been
0: putting your bin out.
1: I hadn't really noticed but apparently not. No, I mean not consistently but maybe there would just been a few weeks here Mm. and there where it hadn't been put out. Maybe someone had complained to a real estate agent. But obviously you know what I'm thinking.
2: That you'll be the – the ambassador for the bins, bin warden.
1: I, I actually wasn't thinking that, but oh, maybe oh. kind of taking a leadership role in the area. But I was thinking it is a, a golden opportunity for a note in the stairwell. A, a note. Well, just it's, it's a perfect opportunity to reach out, isn't mm. it? I was thinking a note, but I'm open to suggestions. I just thought you'd
0: be hanging out there saying, or "Happy the, bin night." There's, there's <laughs> that too. <laughs> <Be a note. laughs> Happy
1: midnight with with <laughs> snacks and drinks. Well, you're or actua-
0: rubbish. All rubbish to put in the bins. <laughs> yeah, just a reminder. Hey, hey, this is you what, know what? This is what goes in a bin exactly. Like a trestle table <laughs> dressed
2: with trash, <laughs> exactly. laid
1: out. I was actually thinking of printing up some materials. Um, yeah, there's that part. Mm. Or I was thinking a bin in my share house that I was in beforehand, we had a cleaning wheel, so it would rotate um, between our our three names and whether we cleaned the hallway, bathroom or kitchen. So I was thinking a bin wheel in the hallway, maybe like the opposite ends of the wheel, north-south points are like you take it in or you take it out and you rotate it through the week. Mm -hmm. Um, so different apartments are on, have the responsibility of taking it out or bringing it in one week. Now, obviously I know that's a bit of a stretch, um, but it's just, I think a good opportunity to seize. And ultimately I do also do want to raise composting. Um, if they've Thank
5: got any thought,
0: pardon. I'm glad you did
5: in the
2: note. In the same note.
0: In the same note. Do you mm. think that's too much? Coming on too strong. So wait. So what's in the note already? Wednesday well, night is bin night. Um, no, happened.
2: in the note it's like let's divide taking out the bins.
0: Oh, that. And much. then and then yeah, we'll okay.
2: and then we'll compost.
0: Why doesn't everyone just take out their own bin?
2: Well, no, because it's I that's not the way it works. You, oh, cause you, you don't. Have you your bring. A, you. you rubbish down and just put to the in communal bin, bin you're bin. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, exactly. They're, the bins are communal. Yeah. We don't all well, have uh, a look, bin. Look,
2: I mean, what's Body Corporate doing? It's this, where's yeah, the Body what Corporate money for? going? Well, well, isn't that someone who they pay someone to clean the communal space and take out the bins? Isn't that almost mm. literally...
1: Look, yeah, that's a a fair question, but it's not about that. It's about the in with the neighbours. You're happy. I'm happy happy to have this opportunity. I'm more than happy to have this collective activity. And do you know what? Take or leave the bin wheel. The end game, you weren't far from it, Mon, Mm. is Chrissy Drinks.
0: Chrissy Drinks. Chrissy
1: Drinks is the end game. So the note is I raise the bin or just hey or... Let me know. I don't know. We can workshop what's in the note. Endgame is proposing Chrissy drinks. It's opening a dialogue. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, And we could have the Chrissy drinks on midnight, Wednesday. I think that's an appropriate night of the week.
0: Won't clash with. Exactly. Legitimate social occasions.
1: Yeah, where you sit in the hierarchy of, like, social yeah, yeah, yeah. commitments. We're pretty much strangers.
2: So – And you'll sit Prosecco around the bins. And then <laughs> you throw your glass into the bin. <laughs> throw
1: your full glass of Prosecco straight into the bin. Uh, well, yeah, we've got a bin. Why we don't
2: could... you take ownership of the bins? I mean, if, if instead of ah. – is, 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 is it like, well, it might clash with a, a, a basketball match or mm. – I mean – because the whole wheel, um, presumably the bins operated, the system worked before you arrived in the building. Yeah. And I'm not saying you or the <laughs> <Yeah>. correlating, <laughs> inciting, you know, you've caused the mayhem. But what, what ha, where has it gone wrong? Did, did the email say?
1: Um, it just said we've noticed that right. a few weeks that the
2: recycling's been. So maybe there's really a, some, a leadership coup. Mm. Mm. Like maybe <laughs> there'll be a bin leader spill. Yeah, <laughs> maybe there's more to
1: this—a standoff between that. Maybe there's someone that's always putting the bins out, and they're like, "I've mm. had it. It needs to get to this point so the other apartments pull up their socks and actually realise what night is midnight. Because
2: if you take on the responsibility, you'll be a hero. Yeah, or
1: overbearing neighbour that they will actively avoid.
0: Oh, if a neighbour – if I lived in an apartment building and a neighbour said, I'm going to take the bins out every week, I'd be like, cool. Mm. I'm not like, oh, that is so overbearing.
2: I wanted to do this. (laughs) undermining my authority? How dare
0: you? My bin agency. I'd be like, cool, I don't even know. If I was one of those neighbours who lived in that building, clearly I don't know who's taking it out anyway because I'm not doing it. That's why the the boss – lady boss baby whoever is boss em- baby real estate is yeah. emailing and saying excellent real estate agency by fyi <laughs> boss this is been <laughs> so um if you offer to do it great okay i think they'll be like
2: because yeah. if you send an email say with the wheel i know you're willing to scrap the wheel idea but it's like hey would you like to uh do more work and have another schedule mm. uh, yeah. and then associate that with me
0: yeah, interact with me. Yeah. The text came through, which is exactly what I was thinking. What'd they say? They said, propose Christmas drinks and then Bring raise the a- issue at Christmas drinks. That's fantastic. Don't put it all on the note. Don't be like, bin night is Wednesday and this is how you boss. Come to Christmas drinks. i got to get drinks. And you're, it's too hard.
1: Okay, all right. Well, what about a compromise? I do a note in the stairwell, an invitation to Chrissy drinks, mm. but there's some doodles of bins on on the note just to give it a bit of charm and like like a picture of a little possum on the bin. Great. In a crissy hat.
2: Yeah. I like it. Thank uh, you. It, it, if it's not too passive aggressive. No. Well, it's an invitation to drinks. <laughs> and i she's like,
1: oh, there's a picture of uh, a bin. I don't know why. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I see. This is the thing. This is I need it or should the note be typed? Mm. mm. Oh, or
0: cut out with individual
1: letters, <laughs> like From a ransom.
5: <laughs> Different size fonts.
1: With yeah. my fingerprints and <laughs> <laughs> some red paint. How do you think that'll go down?
8: Triple R.
0: Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasts, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.